Section 4 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Matilda of Flanders, Chapter 2, Part 2. The year 1069 was a season of peculiar misery in England. The breaking up of the court at Winchester, and the departure of Queen Matilda and her children for Normandy, cast a deep gloom on the aspect of William's affairs, while it was felt as a serious evil by the industrious classes, whose prosperity depended on the encouragement extended to their handiworks, by the demands of the rich and powerful, for those articles of adornment and luxury, in the fabrication of which many hands are profitably employed, employment being equivalent to wealth with those whose time, ingenuity, or strength can be brought into the market in any tangible form. But where there is no custom, it is useless to tax the powers of the craftsman or artisan to produce articles which are no longer required. This was the case in England from the year 1069, when the queen and ladies of the court having quitted the country trade languished employment ceased and the horrors of civil war were aggravated by the distress of a starving population the most peaceably disposed were goaded by their sufferings to desperation it was according to most accounts in this year that william to prevent the people of the land from confederating together in nocturnal assemblies for the purpose of discussing their grievances and stimulating each other to revolt, compelled them to couvert few, or to extinguish the lights and fires in their dwellings, at eight o'clock every evening, at the tolling of a bell called, from that circumstance, the curfew, or couvert few. Such, at any rate, has been the popular tradition of ages, and traces of the custom in many places still remain. The curfew has become so thoroughly identified with the institutions of William the Conqueror, that we doubt not it originated with him, especially as there was great reason to believe that he had previously resorted to the same measure, in his early career as Duke of Normandy, to secure the better observance of his famous edict, for the suppression of brawls and murders in his dominions, called emphatically God's Peace. When William took the field after Matilda's departure, and commenced one of his rapid marches towards York, where Waltheo had encouraged the Danish army to winter, he swore, by the splendor of God, his usual oath, that he would not leave one living soul in Northumberland. As soon as he entered Yorkshire, he began to execute his terrible threats of vengeance, laying the whole country to waste with fire and sword after he had bribed the Danish chief to withdraw, and the long-defended city of York was surrendered at discretion by Waltheo. He won that powerful Saxon leader to his cause, by bestowing upon him in marriage his beautiful niece, Judith. These fateful nuptials were solemnized among the ruins of the vanquished city of York, where the conqueror kept his Christmas, amidst the desolation he had wrought. Not to enter into the melancholy details of William's work of devastation in the north of England, which are so pathetically recorded by the Saxon Chronicle, we will close the brief annals of the dire years 1070 and 1071, 
with the death of Earl Edwin, the affianced husband of one of the daughters of the Conqueror and Matilda. He was proceeding from Eli to Scotland, charged, as was supposed, with a secret mission from his disinherited countrymen to the King of Scots, when his route was betrayed by three brothers in whom he had rashly confided, and, after a valiant defense against a band of Normans, he was slain, with twenty of his followers. His death was passionately bewailed by the English, and even the stern nature of the conqueror was melted into compassion, and he is said to have shed tears when the bleeding head of the young Saxon, with its long flowing hair, was presented to him by the traitors, who had beguiled him into the Norman ambush, and, instead of conferring the expected reward on the murderers, he condemned them to perpetual exile. A singular curiosity was turned up by the plough, 1694, in a field near Sutton, in the Isle of Eli, where Edwin and Morcar are said to have met. It is a small shield of silver, about six inches long. On it was a Saxon inscription, which has been found to express that it had the double property of protecting the person who wore it, and the lover for whose sake it was worn. If it belonged to the young Earl Edwin, it was perhaps a return love pledge from the betrothed princess. The Saxon bishops had stood forth as champions for the rights and ancient laws of the people, and William, finding it impossible to awe or silence these true patriots, proceeded to deprive them of their benefices, and to plunder the churches and monasteries without scruple. And, according to the report of Roger Wendover, and other ancient chroniclers, he appropriated to his own use all the chalices and rich shrines on which he could lay his hands. It was in vain for the English clergy to appeal to the Roman pontiff for protection, for William was supported by the authority of the new system of church government adopted by the Norman bishops, which was to deprive the people of the use of the scriptures in the Saxon tongue, thereby rendering one of the best and noblest legacies bequeathed to them by that royal reformer, King Alfred. The translation commenced by him of the word of God, a dead letter. It also became an understood thing that no scholar of English birth was to be admitted to any degree of ecclesiastical preferment. The Norman language was at that time introduced, by royal authority, into all schools, colleges, and public foundations, for the instruction of youth. The laws and statutes of the country were written in that language, and no other was permitted to be used in courts of justice, to the great perplexity and vexation of the people of the land, who were thus under the necessity of employing Norman advocates to plead for redress against the wrongs of Normans. The luckless Saxons were, of course, sure to obtain more law than justice in such cases, being for the most part wholly unconscious of the purport of the proceedings, so that unless they had the good fortune to fall into the hands of very conscientious Norman pleaders, they were sacrificed to the superior interest of their opponents, and, for aught they could tell to the contrary, the advocates whom they had paid might have employed their eloquence on the contrary side, or, at the least, in betraying all the weaker points in their clients' causes. It was the earnest desire of our Norman sovereigns to silence the Saxon tongue forever, by substituting in its place the Norman dialect, which was a mixture of French and Danish. It was, however, found to be a more easy thing to subjugate the land than to suppress the natural language of the people. 
a change was all that could be effected and that change was an amalgamation between the two languages the normans gradually acquiring as many of the saxon words and idioms as the anglo-saxons were compelled to use of theirs latin was used by the learned as a general medium of communication and thus became in a slight degree mingled with the parlance of the more refined portion of society from these mingled elements our own copious and expressive language was in process of time formed one of the conqueror's most difficult undertakings was the reduction of the isle of eli which had been fortified with the most consummate military skill by the saxon patriot harroward who was accounted one of the bravest champions and most accomplished leaders the unsettled state of england had the effect of dividing william from his beloved queen and forced them for a considerable time to reign separately he in england and she in normandy matilda meantime who appears to have possessed no inconsiderable talents in the art of government had conducted the regency of normandy during all the troubles in which her lord was involved with great prudence and address she had been placed in a position of peculiar difficulty in consequence of the revolt of the province of maine and the combined hostilities of the king of france and the duke of bretagne who had taken advantage of the manner in which william was occupied with the scottish invasion and the saxon revolt to attack his continental dominions and matilda was compelled to apply to her absent lord for succor william immediately dispatched the son of fitz osborne to assist his fair regent in her military arrangements for the defence of normandy and expedited a peace with the king of scotland that he might the sooner come to her aid in person with his veteran troops the norman ladies were at that period extremely malcontent at the long protracted absence of their lords the wife of hugh grant miss nill the governor of winchester had caused them great uneasiness by the reports which she had circulated of the infidelities of their husbands these representations had induced the indignant dames to send peremptory messages for the immediate return of their lords in some instances the warlike normans had yielded obedience to their conjugal mandates and returned home greatly to the prejudice of william's affairs in england this was the aim of the lady of grant mesnil who had for some reason conceived a particular ill-will against her sovereign and not contented with doing everything in her power to incite his norman subjects to revolt she had thought proper to cast the most injurious aspersions on his character as a husband and insinuated that he made an attempt on her virtue githa the mother of harold eagerly caught at these reports which she is said to have taken great pleasure in circulating she communicated them to sweno king of denmark and added that the reason why Merliswen, a kentish noble of some importance had joined the late revolt in england was because the norman tyrant had dishonored his fair niece the daughter of one of the canons of canterbury this tale whether false or true came in due course to matilda's ears and caused the first conjugal difference that had ever arisen between her and her lord she was by no means of a temper to take any affront of the kind patiently and it is said that she caused the unfortunate damsel to be put to death with circumstances of great cruelty hearn in his notes to robert of gloucester furnishes us with a curious sequel to this tale extracted from a very ancient chronicle among the contonian manuscripts 
which, after relating that the priest's daughter was privily slain by a confidential servant of Matilda, the queen, adds that the conqueror was so enraged at the barbarous revenge taken by his queen, that, on his return to Normandy, he beat her with his bridle so severely that she soon after died. Now, it is certain Matilda lived full ten years after the period at which this matrimonial discipline is said to have been inflicted upon her by the strong arm of the conqueror. And the worthy chronicler himself seems to regard that part of the tale as apocryphal, and merely relates it as one of the current reports of the day. We are willing to hope that the story altogether has originated from the scandalous reports of that malign busybody of the 11th century, the Lady Grant Missile though at the same time it is to be feared that the woman who was capable of inflicting such deadly vengeance on the unfortunate saxon noble who had been the object of her earliest affections would not have been very scrupulous in her dealings with a female whom she suspected of having rivalled her in her husband's regard at this distance of time it is impossible after much careful investigation to speak with any certainty as to the degree of credit which may be attached to this dark tale but as it is recorded by several of the oldest chroniclers it becomes a matter of duty in the biographers of matilda of flanders to relate it and leave the readers to form their own conclusions william was attended on his voyage to normandy by a great military retinue many english as well as norman troops accompanied him and performed good service for him in the reduction of the rebel province of maine the king of france made a hasty retreat before the terror of his warlike neighbors arms and peace was quickly restored within the circle of william's continental dominions if any cause of anger or mistrust had occurred during their long separation to interrupt the conjugal happiness of matilda and her husband it was but a passing cloud for historians all agree that they were living together in a state of the most affectionate union during the year 1074, great part of which was spent by the conqueror with his family in Normandy. It was at this period that Edgar Etheling came to the court at Caen to make a voluntary submission to the Norman sovereign and to entreat his forgiveness for the several insurrections in which he had been engaged. The conqueror freely accorded an amnesty, treated him with great kindness, and pensioned him with a daily allowance of a pound of silver, in the hope that this amicable arrangement would secure his government in England from all future disturbances. He was mistaken. Fresh troubles had already broken out in that quarter, but this time they proceeded from his own turbulent Norman chiefs. One of them, withal, was the son of his great favorite and trusty kinsman, Fitz Osborne who was defeated and taken prisoner by the nobles and prelates of Worcester. The Danish fleet, which had vainly hovered on the coast, waiting for a signal to land troops to assist the conspirators, was fain to retreat without effecting its object. As for the great Saxon earl, Waltheo, who had been drawn into the plot, and betrayed by his Norman wife, Judith, to her uncle the conqueror, he was, after a long suspense, beheaded on a rising ground just without the gates of winchester being the first english nobleman who had died by the hand of a public executioner william next pursued his norman traitor ralph de gader to the continent and besieged him in the city of dal where he had taken refuge the young duke of britagaine alan fergiant 
assisted also by the king of france came with a powerful army to the succor of the besieged earl and william was not only compelled to raise the siege but to abandon his tents and baggage to the value of fifteen thousand pounds his diplomatic talents however enabled him to extricate himself from the embarrassing strait in which he had placed himself and a pacific treaty was entered into between him and the valiant young duke of Britagain, the conclusion of which was a marriage between Alan and his daughter Constance. This alliance was no less advantageous to the princely bridegroom than agreeable to William and Matilda. The nuptials were celebrated with great pomp, and the bride was dowered with all the lands of Chester, once the possessions of the unfortunate Earl Edwin, who had formerly been contracted to one of her sisters. At the close of this year died Editha, the widow of Edward the Confessor. She had retired to a convent, but was treated with the respect and honor of a queen dowager, and was buried by the side of her royal husband in Westminster Abbey. She was long survived by her unfortunate sister-in-law, Algith, the widow of Harold, the other Saxon queen dowager, who, having had woeful experience of the calamities of greatness, and the vanity of earthly distinctions, voluntarily resigned her royal title, and passed the residue of her days in obscurity. In the year 1075, William and Matilda, with their family, kept the festival of Easter with great pomp, at Fescamp, and attended in person the profession of their eldest daughter Sicily, who was there veiled a nun, by the Archbishop John. This royal maid, says Ordericus Vitalis, had been educated with great care in the convent of Cain, where she was instructed in all the learning of the age and several sciences. She was consecrated to the holy and indivisible trinity, and took the veil under the venerable abbess Matilda, and faithfully conformed to all the rules of conventual discipline. Sicily succeeded this abbess in her office, having, for fourteen years, maintained the highest reputation for sanctity and wisdom. From the moment that she was dedicated to God by her father, she became a true servant of the Most High, and continued a pure and holy virgin, attending to the pious rules of her order, for a period of fifty-two years. Soon after the profession of the Lady Sicily, those fatal divisions began to appear in the royal family, of which Matilda is accused of having sown the seeds, by the injurious partiality she had shown for Robert, her firstborn this prince having been associated with his royal mother in the regency of normandy from the age of fourteen had been brought more into public than was perhaps desirable at a period of life when presumptuous ideas of self-importance are only too apt to inflate the mind robert during his father's long absence was not only emancipated from all control but had accustomed himself to exercise the functions of a sovereign in normandy by anticipation and to receive the homage and flattery of all ranks of people in the dominions to which he was the heir the conqueror it seems had promised that he would one day bestow the duchy of normandy on him and robert having represented the ducal majesty for nearly eight years considered himself an injured person when his royal father took the power into his own hands once more and extracted from him the obedience of a subject and the duty of a son there was also a jealous rivalry between Robert and his two younger brothers, William Rufus and Henry. 
William Rufus, notwithstanding his rude, boisterous manners, and the apparent recklessness of his disposition, had an abundant share of worldcraft, and well knew how to adapt himself to his father's humor, so that he was no less a favorite with the conqueror than Robert was with Matilda. Robert was a prince of generous disposition, but of an irritable temperament, proud and quick to take offense. From his low stature his father had bestowed on him the cognomen court hose, and this appellation, like all names derived from some personal peculiarity, was no doubt very displeasing to a haughty young man, and tended in no slight degree to increase the mortification attended on the loss of power, and to create feelings of ill-will against his royal sire. He had withal many injurious flatterers and pretended friends, among the dissipated young nobles of Normandy, who took every occasion to persuade him that he was an injured person, especially with regard to the province of Maine. Robert had in his infancy been espoused to Margaret, the heiress of Herbert, the last earl of that province. The little countess died while they were yet children, and William of Normandy, who had, during her minority, taken her lands under his wardship, annexed them to his own dominions after her death. When the juvenile widower became of age, he considered himself entitled to the earldom and lands of Maine, in right of his deceased wife, and claimed them of his father, who put him off with fair words, but withheld the territory, though the people of Maine demanded Robert for their lord. And at the surrender of the revolted city of Mons, it was among the articles of capitulation that he should receive the investiture of the earldom. This condition was violated by the conqueror, who had no mind to part with any portion of his acquisitions during his life, verifying, in this as in every other action, the predictions of the gossips at his birth, that he would grasp everything within his reach, and that which he once grasped he would keep. In the year 1076, while Matilda and William were with their family, at the castle of Laglay, their two younger sons, William and Henry, in want of play, threw some dirty water from the balcony of an upper apartment, on Robert and some of his partisans, who were walking in the court below. The fiery air of Normandy construed this act of boyish folly into an act of studied contempt and being just then in an irritable and excited frame of mind, he drew his sword and rushed up the stairs, with the threat of taking deadly vengeance on the youthful transgressors who had offered this insult to him before the whole court. This occasioned a prodigious tumult and uproar in the castle, and nothing but the presence and stern authority of the king, who, hearing the alarm, burst into the room with his drawn sword in his hand, could have prevented fatal consequences. Robert, not obtaining the satisfaction he expected, for the affront he had received, privately retired from the court that very evening, followed by a party of the young nobility whom he had attached to his cause. Richard, the second son of William and Matilda, does not appear to have taken any part in these quarrels. He was the pupil of the learned Lanfranc, and was probably occupied with studious pursuits, as he is said to have been a prince of great promise and of an amiable disposition. He died in England, in the flower of his youth. According to popular tradition, he was gored by a stag, while hunting in the new forest, which caused his death. But some historians record that he died of a fever, occasioned by the malaria in the depopulated district of Hampshire, 
at the time when so many thousands of the unfortunate saxons perished by famine in consequence of having been driven from their homes when the conqueror converted that once fertile part of england into a chase for the enjoyment of his favorite amusement of hunting prince richard was buried in winchester cathedral a slab of stone marked with his name is still seen there drayton gives a political reason for the depopulation of the shore of hampshire occasioned by the enclosure of the new forest which is well worth the consideration of the historical reader clear avon coming in her sister stour doth call and at new forest foot into the sea doth fall that forest now whose sight in boundless seems to lie its being erst received from william's tyranny who framed laws to keep those beasts he planted then his lawless will from hence before had driven men that where the earth was warm with winter's festal fires the melancholic hair now forms entangled brakes and briars and on sites of churches grown with nettles fern and weeds stands now the aged rand-pick trunk where ploughmen cast their seeds the people were by william here cut off from every trade that on this spot the normans still might enter to invade and on this desolated place and unfrequented shore new forces evermore might land to aid those here before the saxon chronicle comments on the oppressive statutes enacted by the norman conqueror for the preservation of game in an eloquent strain of indignant irony and says he loved the tall deer as if he had been their father that game laws were in existence at a much earlier period is most certain but it was during this reign that they were rendered a grievance to the people and assumed the character of a moral wrong in the legislature of the country the more enlightened policy of modern jurisprudence has in some degree ameliorated the rigorous penalties enacted by our norman line of sovereigns against poaching in its various departments but the bitterness engendered by the spirit of those laws remains in full force in the hearts of those classes against whom the statutes were supposed to point and is constantly acted upon by persons assuming the office of political agitators for the purpose of creating divisions between the people and their rulers end of section four